the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. My eyes are dry. My faith is old. My heart is hard. My prayers are cold And I know how I ought to be Alive to you And dead to me What can be done For an old heart like mine Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. I am desperate for Jesus to come by his Spirit. I'm desperate for Jesus to come and change what's happening in my life, in the life of the church. He's been moving powerfully upon me. I've been spending much time in Scripture and prayer, waiting on God for the church. I'm glad you're here today. I pray that what you hear will quicken your heart, that the Holy Spirit will come upon you with great conviction. We need revival. Well, what is revival? Revival is simply getting right with God. And a church getting right with God. 
and sinners being saved. Charles Finney said that a revival is nothing else than a new beginning of obedience to God. It's living up to the biblical standard of holiness. There's some scriptures that talk about that. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. So we see this perfection especially in Psalm 15 and in Psalm 24. Do you want to read those? Let's start with Psalm 15. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor in whose eyes a vile person is condemned, but he honoreth them that fear the Lord, he that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not, he that putteth not out his money to usury, nor taketh reward against the innocent, he that doeth these things shall never be moved. And then Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the sea, and established it upon the floods. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands, and a pure heart, who hath, who, <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. This is Psalm 24. So revival means that we're being returned to God. We're being returned to obedience. Walking clean with God. Now I've wanted this all my life. And all my life I've heard preachers talking about revival. But it never came. And I've always wondered why. When we look at the reality of revival, it's not mysterious. It's simply a turning back to God. So if we dig a little bit deeper into this Psalm 15, this is a, a kind of mirror that we can examine our own behavior in. <clears throat> so we can look at this and we can say, Am I backbiting with my tongue? Am I saying things about people behind their back that I wouldn't say to their face? Am I doing evil against my neighbor? Or am I taking up a reproach against my neighbor? Do I honor those who fear the Lord? Or do I honor those who are in sin? If I say that I'm going to do something, do I do it? Even if it's to my own hurt. If I lend out money, am I taking interest on it? These are very specific things that we can ask ourselves. So revival is very, very personal. Yes, it's corporate. It's the church. But it's really about me as a person. Have I returned to the obedience to God? 
Yes, and then when we return to that obedience to God, then we begin to have a heart for others to return to that obedience to God, and that's where revival spreads. So conversion, personal revival, means I turn from my sin. I turn now from my sin. And I begin to reach out to other people who are walking in sin, and I call them to leave their sin now. So what we desire and why we're so interested in revival is that it is what God does and what we do in cooperation with him that restores a soul from a state of sin to a state of righteousness and peace and communion with God. So corporate church revival means that many Christians in any given church will put away all sin and they'll live holy and bring their family and their friends, their neighbors, fellow students, co-workers to Jesus. How will they do that? They will call them to stop sinning and to recognize what happens when a person does sin. They are separated from God. And we're not just separated from God, but, you know, Jesus tells us in the book of John that the wrath of God is on us and we're condemned because we've made ourselves an enemy of God at that point. So we can't have peace with God if we're his enemy and sin makes us an enemy of God. Now, I've struggled with this because I talked about this earlier. My whole background is you walk with people with unconditional love. You accept them as they are. You ask questions. You encourage. You support. You nurture. Where does this fit into revival? Well, let's talk about it. It doesn't. Alexandra is looking at me like, what are you talking about, Ray? No, this does not fit into revival. Revival is a very straightforward dealing with sin now. And some are very offended by dealing with sin right now. So corporate church revival means that many Christians in a given church make the decision to put away all their sin to live holy. And now they begin calling all of their friends and family to come and live holy with them. This will bring sinners to Jesus, but it will also separate and rejection will come. If you've in any way tried to speak to a person about their sin, you quickly see the defensiveness rise you're using you statements. You're judging me. Well, no, I'm not judging you. I'm talking about your specific behavior that I'm observing that is causing you to walk without the presence of the Holy Spirit. I opened the broadcast saying, I'm desperate for Jesus. I'm desperate for sinners I'm in an agony of heart for sinners 
to turn away from their sin. I ask a church leader in a local church yesterday. I ask him, are you all in for Jesus? Have you completely left your sin? And his response was, we need to talk about that. He was not ready to talk about it yesterday. Can you imagine a church leader who cannot absolutely say, yes, I am all in for Jesus and all sin has been eradicated from my life. I am following Jesus. I am sold out. Well, what will be the condition of that church if the leadership of the church simply wants people to come and experience the love and the fellowship and the good music and the good teaching, but not leave their sin. So when we ask the question, what is revival? It's very practical. So if every Christian were to make this commitment to say, okay, I'm done with sin, I'm going to live holy by faith in Jesus, like we talked about yesterday, it's by the indwelling Jesus. It's not by white-knuckling it. Mm -hmm. So if every Christian were to do that, and then they were to just simply pray for and speak with those they know who are lost and bring them to Jesus, this in and of itself would be a revival. So when speak when people today speak about revival, they usually are referring to a widespread move of God in which many Christians are revived and backsliders are reclaimed and sinners are saved in a very short period of time. In America, we've called these Great Awakenings. But how does a Great Awakening start? Well, let's talk about that. I can tell you how revival has started in my own heart. Revival started in my own heart when I recognized that my prayers were dead, when I recognized that there was no presence of the Holy Spirit in my heart, in my life. I would read the scriptures and they were dull to me. I could study them for a sermon, but not do what I call recreational reading of scripture, where it was the top desire of my heart to open the word and just dive in and, and devour. So I began to recognize there was a spiritual problem in my life. And I began to earnestly seek after the Lord God of heaven. So when we speak about a widespread move of God, it starts in one heart. In this kind of revival, the power of God will come upon a, a specific geographic location if that one person or that two or three people group will begin to cry out to God. God's moving in power in the church is a result of secret prayer. And sometimes this will take quite a long time. If you've read or watched videos on YouTube about the Shillong revival in India, it was a revival that began among, I think, elementary school children. And it started because all of the teachers prayed for two years 
from two to four in the morning every night for revival to come. And it finally came one day when one of the students just started to sing a gospel song and the power of God fell on the place. In this kind of setting, people gather every night. They're being saved. They're being healed. Even those who don't attend the meetings, they're at their place of work and they're suddenly under deep conviction as the Holy Spirit begins to move upon them. Sinners are saved by conviction of sin now. And they leave their sin now. Part of what blocks revival, in fact, I would say the major block to revival is that everyone is comfortable in their sin and no one wants to talk about it. Everyone wants to make the journey and love one another, care about one another. But is it really caring for me to not speak boldly and with love about the sin I see in a brother or sister's heart? I don't think that's love. I think that's permissiveness. That's going along to get along. So if we look at the first New Testament revival, this would be in the book of Acts, we see a key feature of revival in Acts 2.43, which is that the love and the fear of God comes upon every soul. And if you remember Ananias and Sapphira, when the power of God comes in such intensity and he comes so close to us, there's not space to play with sin anymore because we could die. It's frightening. But it's more frightening to stay away from God. It's more frightening because every day you're getting a year older, a day older. Time is passing. And when will you make that agreement with God to finally leave your sin. It's not a gradual process. Leaving your sin is not something you grow out of. It's something you take a very specific and concrete action. It is a conscious decision. I will go to Jesus. And I will ask him to come and dwell in my heart, in my life. I will give him authority over me. So, I'm going to talk about another kind of revival just very quickly. There are basically two kinds of revivals. The first revival is a revival of experience where we're ignited, we're lit on fire, as it were, in our emotions as we pour out our love to Jesus Christ. It's not this slow, dead plodding. Every week we do the same thing. No, it's, it's alive. The presence of God is there. Richard Owen Roberts speaks about this, and he says that this is usually a, a revival that doesn't last a long time. Then there's a second kind of revival. And in this revival, there is 
dramatic change in what we believe as we discover that what we have believed is simply not true. I'll give you an example. I've always believed that you nurture people out of their sin. I now know that's simply not true. I know now that we must deal with the sin head on right now. And that conversion is immediate. It's not a therapeutic process. It's not a journey by stages. It's dealing with sin right now because if we don't, we're lost. We're hellbound. That's what the scriptures teach. I can give you many passages of scripture that say this. So for me, it's a radical change to suddenly be dealing head on with sin as we're doing on this broadcast instead of simply teaching interesting catchy things that inspire and lift but allow you to remain comfortable in your sin. We can't walk that way anymore. So what Christians actually experience in a revival is important. So first, if you are a Christian and you have had some kind of experience in the past with Jesus, but now you find that you're in a cold, hardened state, you don't have any tears when you pray, you might not even pray for the lost at all. In a revival, when you really just get honest and confess that and deal with that before God, the power of that sin, of all sin, will be broken in your life. And as a result, you'll be renewed. And you'll have such a love for Jesus that you would feel like you would rather even die than sin against him. And then this in turn will ignite your heart with a love for the lost. And now you'll find that instead of being cold or thinking, well, I know I should pray for my family, but you don't really have a heart for it. Now you're really in an agony for specific individuals and you're able to pray in faith and actually see them come to Jesus through your prayer and through your personal witness. Alexandra, let's back up. What is it that ignites agony of heart for lost sinners? So I think it begins with first, as I said, we have to get right with God. And then when we see what really happens is that we're seeing how evil sin is because we see who Jesus is. And so we see how beautiful and holy and pure and loving God is. And then we see sin as just this absolutely awful thing. Like, how could we do that to Jesus? And then that in turn, we say, well, we don't want anyone to be doing this to Jesus. And Jesus even died to save us from sin. So why are we even doing this anymore? It's, and then it just becomes illogical. So we're not seeing Jesus as a computer or as some far-off distant person. We're seeing that sin hurts Jesus personally. Yes. That this is between my heart and his heart. And I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to cause the 
God of heaven, Jesus, my Savior, to have grief. And then it becomes bigger because we see, we look at the world and we see that most of the world is in rebellion. And then we think about Jesus created the world and it's heartbreaking to him for his creation to be rebelling against him. And so that's where we begin to reach out. You know, part of what began to happen in my own heart, I began to see the utter ugliness of sin. I saw a woman today walk into a store and she was all dolled out in her sexuality, sporting all of her tattoos, sporting all of her curves. And immediately in my heart, I said, Lord, how ugly, how ugly. And I began to pray for her in my heart. Now, when a man looks at a woman, he's either going to be indifferent or he's going to begin to lust or he's going to begin to pray. For most of my life, it would be either I would look with lust and then look away and repent quickly or I would just not be interested. I would just not even be caught. I think how Jesus did with Mary of Magdala. I believe she was a very beautiful woman. She was a a prostitute. She was a seductress. She made her money that way. I don't think Jesus had any lust in his heart because he didn't sin. And he didn't have any indifference in his heart. I think he must have, in that village of Magdala, I've walked that dusty street. It's not large, but on the left-hand side of that street, you come to the synagogue, and it's a beautiful synagogue. As I stood in that dusty street, the tears began to run down my face. Because I was seeing Mary of Magdala swishing her skirts, flashing her eyes with all of her makeup, trying to attract Jesus' attention. I suspect she stood at the door of that synagogue because they wouldn't have let her in. I suspect she stood at the door of that synagogue and listened to the words that Jesus spoke. And I'm sure her heart was deeply moved because here was a man who was not after her. And Jesus' love, calling her out of her sin, he cast seven demons out of her. So he didn't go there, there, and pat her on the head and say, you'll be better after a while. No, he went after the demons in her life and said, leave now. And of course she left and welcomed the demons back into her life seven times until finally she really caught it. Jesus was serious about the demons leaving her heart and her life. I want to tell you today, Jesus is serious about the demons leaving your life and your heart. And if you're walking in any known sin, it's because you are in fellowship with a demon. 
And Jesus is saying, look, will you let me cast that demon out? Will you let me remove that sin from your heart? Will you allow me to restore you? And now, wow, once you are restored, you can only do what Mary did. Pour out the perfume on Jesus, on other people. Now your heart is broken in love for the lost. If your heart is not broken for the lost, it's for one of two reasons. Either you're walking in open rebellion against God, or you're walking in inner, silent rebellion against Jesus. And there's only one way for that hardness to be broken, and that's to get honest and repent and ask Jesus to please come and change you. And he will. So we've identified that revival is a new beginning of obedience to God. And what that looks like is the church becoming holy and sinners being saved. And so we can look at some historical examples to really illustrate what this looks like. You may have heard of the, there was a big revival that happened in 1857 to 1858. A lot of the conversions were in New York City. Across the United States, a million people came to Christ in one year. And in New York City, it became common for thousands of people to crowd into theaters on their lunch hour for prayer meetings that weren't led by any particular person. It was a move of the Holy Spirit. We can look farther back. The First Great Awakening in the American colonies if you've heard of Jonathan Edwards or George Whitfield, these were men who were part of that first great awakening. And that's what really paved the way for America to have its foundation as a Christian nation. The second great awakening, that's where we got women's suffrage, other the women being able to own property, the equality of men and women in society really came out of the second great awakening, as did the abolition of slavery the temperance movement, public education. And we mentioned earlier the Welsh revival. There were about 150,000 people converted in one year from 1904 to 1905. And really tremendous things happened in this revival. In some places, the crime rate dropped 50%. Other places, the crime rate was gone. Pubs closed. Old debts were paid, stolen goods were returned. And if you've heard of the Moravian revival, the Moravians were very interesting. Um, you may have heard there were some men who sold themselves into slavery so that they could reach the lost. Those were Moravians. But that came out of a revival in 1727. There was a community of Christians living together with Count Zinzendorf, and they committed themselves to pray around the clock, 24-7. And their prayer meeting lasted over a hundred years. It didn't include only the adults, but even the children. So they began praying in May of 1727, and then it wasn't until August that the minister of the Sunday service became overwhelmed by a wonderful and irresistible power of the Lord 
and quickly a move of God broke out so that people began to testify that they hardly knew whether they belonged to earth or had already gone to heaven. They saw the hand of God and were baptized with the Holy Spirit. Many signs and wonders took place. And John Wesley actually visited the Moravians in the midst of this revival. And that had a huge impact on his preaching. He said his heart was strangely warmed by the Moravians. And he began then, that really put him on the path that later he would pursue with such success in the establishment of the Methodist churches. Healing miracles, prophecies, visions, intense weeping over sin. This is what happened in the Moravian revival. Now, on a personal level, revival consists in the decision to forever renounce all sin and to completely devote yourself to Jesus Christ, to love him above all else and to keep his commandments. This is the essential building block. Now, let me say it very clearly. It's much easier to enter into a revival than to start a revival. Because those who start the revival recognize their utter coldness of heart. They don't have any emotional support except that by the Holy Spirit. They've often been shut away. They've often been in what we call at the prayer chapel the desert. But you know the desert time does not necessarily mean revival. The children of Israel walked in the desert and they all ended up dying in that desert because as God tried to purify them as silver, he finally said, they won't be revived. And he let them die in the desert. What was the essential element in that refusal? I believe it was their decision to want other things, food, prosperity, ambition. They wanted other things more than they wanted the God of heaven. They could see the fiery cloud every day. They could see the pillar. They could see the presence of God. But it didn't change their hearts. They refused to believe in Jesus, in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This refusal to believe his word, this refusal to seek him, Remember Joshua? Joshua would go to the tent of meeting with Moses to speak with God. And after Moses was finished speaking with God, the scriptures say Joshua just wanted to stay right there. He wouldn't leave the tent of meeting. I love that about Joshua. That's what prepared his heart to then lead the children of Israel into the promised land. Moses could not lead them by the law into the promised land. It had to be Joshua who led them. And of course, the word Jesus and Joshua 
It's the same word. So as we spoke about earlier, if every Christian were to just obey God, this in and of itself would be a revival. That would be revival. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, <clears throat> most Christians are so cold of heart and hard of heart that it falls on a small minority of Christians who eventually just become completely distressed by everything they see. They look at their church and they look at sinners and they see the church sinking into disgrace. They see the world getting worse and worse every day. And they get to a point where they say, I just can't stand this. I'm going to die if God doesn't come. So this is what then stimulates these particular members of the church to begin praying, sometimes without anyone else even knowing they're doing it. So, for example, if you've heard of the New Hebrides revival, there were two blind sisters who prayed, I think for years, right? Before Evan Roberts finally came, and then the revival broke out. So they might pray something like Psalm 85.6, Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? Or they might pray Habakkuk 3.2, O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years, in the midst of the years make known, in wrath remember mercy. You cannot work up heart agony for the lost. You can't work up your feelings. It doesn't work. But what you focus on, what you hold before your mind, that begins to cause the emotions to follow. Our emotions follow our attention. So, you may be very cold-hearted today. It won't help to say, oh, I'm so cold-hearted, I'm so cold-hearted, what do I do? I've got to get my feelings up. It won't work. You have to go to Jesus and begin to repent for that cold heart. You have to go to Jesus and repent for all the things you're doing and looking at and, and spending your time with that are not anything of heaven but are all of hell. I hear people say to me, well, Pastor, there's nothing wrong with the History Channel. No, there's nothing wrong with most of what's on the History Channel except that it will sear your mind and make it impossible for you to be concerned about the lost sinners. Because when you're watching it, you're vegging. You're not focused on Jesus. You've opened your mind to listen to a worldly discussion. If you're going to be serious about Jesus, you're going to have to spend the time to be right with him. If you let work distract you and cause you bitterness and anger, your heart's going to be cold toward Jesus. In other words, I'm saying that feelings follow your mind. Salvation, revival, start in your mind. 
as you begin to recognize the desperate condition of America and you say, this has to stop. And then you begin to focus your mind on the tragedies that are occurring and you say, Jesus, rescue us. Feelings and emotions begin to be evoked and they will help carry you along. But I have to tell you, in my own experience, I've spent many, many hours on my face on the carpet crying out to God with zero feeling, no emotions, no tears, dry-eyed. The longer I stay there and the more I focus on Jesus and the more I focus on his word, And the more I recognize Holy Spirit is calling me to come in deeper, then the tears begin to flow. The emotions begin to take place. But you see, I don't follow my emotions. My emotions follow my mind. They follow what I decide. Yes, and that's why it's so key that we get our minds off ourselves and we look at what the Bible says about what is the real condition of sinners and what is the what are the holy requirements of God. And as we pray and our mind focuses more and more and we're led by the Spirit of God, we eventually come to a point where we, we really see the desperate need for God to come. Because we recognize that unless the Spirit of God comes and intervenes, that everything will be destroyed and lost. So revival begins when we who call ourselves Christians begin to realize that we are in sin. And as a result, we are not right with God. Hosea 14.1 O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Then we repent, we make restitution, we stop sinning, we live holy before God by the power of the blood, by faith in Jesus Christ. Now this can come by the prompting of a radio broadcast. This may be very helpful to you. It may come from a godly pastor who's preaching about sin and righteousness and holiness. A pastor who has been personally revived. That's what happened with Evan Roberts or Charles Finney or Maria Woodworth Etter. Christians began to repent and get right with God. And then God's spirit was poured out on the church. Hosea writes, Break up your fallow ground. This, it is time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness upon you. This is Habakkuk 10.12. So is revival important? Of course. There's nothing more important than revival. Without revival, Jesus is continually dishonored. He's shamed by the rebellion of sinners and by the hypocrisy of cold Christians who walk in sin. God is 
contemptuously denied his rightful claim over every person's life and over all creation. Christians remain caught in sin and therefore condemned. The lost walk every day in peril of eternal damnation. And in all this, there's the rare saint of God who's weeping, grieving, and groaning as he watches all this. God is pained and grieved. He says in Ezekiel 33, 11, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. So let me ask a question. Is God calling today for revival? I've always heard revival spoken of in terms of the future. But today, right now, is God calling for revival in America? In your heart right now, is that what he wants? How would you answer? I would say absolutely, because revival is obedience to God. And God created us to love and obey him. So if we're not obeying him, we're in rebellion. But God sent Jesus, and this is in and of itself a call for revival. It's a call for the whole world to be revived from its fallen condition and restored to the holiness that God created it with. So you're saying that God is ready now for revival. Absolutely. That if revival does not come, it is not because God does not want to send revival. I hear this lie that revival comes when God decides it's going to come. No, it doesn't. Revival comes when men and women decide they're going to stop sinning and get right with God. Am I far off? No, that's exactly true. So the gospel, it's the good news. It's calling the whole world to be revived. Hmm? Yes. So there's no longer an excuse for us not to be revived. Because God did absolutely everything he could to revive us, to restore us to obedience. He sent his son so that our past sins could be forgiven, so his wrath could be removed. He sent his son to love us and make us holy. And the conditions are just that we repent and believe. So God has done absolutely everything that he can. He's even promised to send his Holy Spirit to make us willing to repent. So there's no excuse for us not to repent or to not be revived. And Acts 17.30 says God commands all people everywhere to repent. So literally, there is no excuse for walking in sin. You have no excuse for being dry-eyed and hard-hearted before God and a total lack of agony for the lost and the dying. It's because of selfishness in your heart. There is absolutely no excuse for sin. I'm calling you, we're calling you today to leave all sin, to say, I'm done. I'm finished. I'm not going to go on. Now, I want to put wheels on that for you. Are you ready to disturb your life? Are you ready to disturb your life? 
Are you ready to come and repent and get right with God? If you are looking for a place where you can come and get right with God, then come to the National Prayer Chapel. And I would say come this Sunday. Come at 12 noon and begin to pray. We will be in prayer at 12 noon at the National Prayer Chapel. And we will be praying for sinners. We will be crying out to God. And if you'd like to come and begin to pray with us, come and pray. If you want to leave your sin now and be converted and leave churchanity and come to Jesus, we're asking you to please come. This will not be a service of entertainment. This will be a service of getting right with God and praying. We meet at the All Saints Anglican Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. Oh, pastor, that's too far. Oh, are you ready to upset your life? Are you ready to turn your life upside down and get right with Jesus? Then come. Don't make any excuses. It's not too far. People will drive that far easily for a ball game. So do you want to get right with Jesus? We meet at the All Saints Anglican Church. It's located at 14851 Gideon Drive in Woodbridge, Virginia. Drive around to the back side of the church facility and you'll see a large white sign that says Lower Lobby. Come in through those double glass doors at ground level and you'll find the worship center for the National Prayer Chapel immediately on your left. Now, I'm not going to try to emotionalize this for you. It's simply in your heart. Do you know that you need to get right with Jesus? That you need to leave your sin now? And you want people to pray for you. You want people to be honest with you then this week come to the National Prayer Chapel. Again, it's at 12 noon, All Saints Anglican Church, located at 14851 Gideon Drive. Now, I also invite you to go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. You'll find there a builder's page. The builders we're inviting are those who will give $100 one time to pay for the first month of FM radio. We need 100 people to give $100. If you'd like to be a builder, would you go to our webpage and would you join us? So far, we have four builders. We need 100. Will you jump in? I also want to invite you to consider helping to cover the radio broadcast for this month. We're coming to the end of August. We're far short of what we need. This is a faith ministry. 
I have no way to provide it. Every penny you give will go directly to pay the radio bill for this month. So if Jesus is moving in your heart and you know that this message is important to you and to others, would you give hilariously as the Holy Spirit prompts you? Send the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. That address again, the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. And I neglected to tell you that with me in studio, if this is your first time listening, is Alexandra, my fiance. I welcome her today. Any last word you'd like to share? Please go to our webpage nationalprayerchapel.com we also have a lot of blog posts about revival and what is the gospel and how to be saved and literally thousands of people are going and downloading messages from around the world we trust you'll also find it very helpful now let's pray Lord I cry out to you today that this very straightforward honest message will accomplish the purpose for which you has, have sent it, that men and women will turn from their sin and be converted, that you will identify for them the emptiness of their heart, the coldness of their heart, the lack of love for the lost. Lord, would you quicken it now in their hearts? I pray in your mighty name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. God bless you. I love you. I look forward to meeting you soon. We'll talk soon. Before the presence of his glory with great joy, with great joy. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 